They Southland picked up one first down in their possession. They started at their own 37 and kicked it away with the ball at the Detroit 47-yard line. Both teams playing a bit uh, conservatively so far, feeling each other out, trying to get uh, a feel of what's going on. Bubba Weich is the quarterback for the Detroit Wheels. Three years at the University of Tennessee and three bowl games in that time. Weich has been up in the Canadian League for the past four years. His wide receiver, Hubie Bryant, goes to the left. Charles McKee, the other flanker to the right side. And the running backs, Scarber and Fobbs, are split. From the 20-yard line, it is first and 10 for Detroit. Their coach, Dan Boister. Weich fumbles the snap. There's a pile-up at the 20. Memphis ball. Hey, Memphis Falcon. Very alertly recovered that football. Leon Pollum. the recovery. John LaHoop. John LaHoop recovered the fumble at the 20-yard line, and the Southmen now have the first break of the ball game, and let's see if they can capitalize on it. Dick Palmer, Coach McVeigh said they were ready. I believe him. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hello there, everybody. How are you? My name is Tim Hanlon, and uh, indeed, you have found Good Seats Still Available, our curious little podcast. Uh, yeah, we do this each and every week as we explore what used to be in professional sports. God knows why, but uh, we love it. We enjoy it. And uh, increasingly, each and every week, you uh, out there in listener land do too. Uh, and hence, uh, we will make more, as they say. So uh, we're going to go back to the WFL this week, and uh, we're going to bring back Mark Speck, our uh, our resident expert in all things uh, World Football League. Uh, and uh, we're going to go into uh, the story of probably, arguably, uh, the most woeful of all teams uh, in the WFL. And that's saying something for sure. Uh, and that is the uh, interesting, uh, sad, and uh, just... Uh, a head-scratching story of the Detroit Wheels. Yeah, remember them of 1974. They didn't even last the full season in the WFL. That, too, was uh, is saying uh, not much, given that uh, there were so many different uh, uh, elements of uh, craziness in that league. But uh, the Detroit Wheels is our focus uh, this week. And uh, Mark's new book uh, devoted to the story of it is called Nothing But a Brand New Set of Flat Tires, the sad story, uh, the sad, sorry, saga, sorry, of the 1974 Detroit Wheels of the World Football League. That clip that you heard actually was from uh, the first ever Detroit Wheels game. It was an away game, and that uh, that clip was from uh, the hometown call of the Memphis Southmen, the opponents for the Wheels in their first ever game, and that was Dick Palmer on the play-by-play with Bill Haney uh, uh, doing the color commentary on WLOK AM radio in uh, in Memphis and the Memphis Southman quote unquote radio network. That uh, was the uh, clip uh, of uh, Bubba Weish, uh, the uh, star, if you can call him that, of the team uh, in the uh, ignominious, I guess, debut uh, of the franchise. And arguably, uh, that clip is uh, probably a good indication of what was going to happen with this franchise, uh, both on the field. Uh, they didn't win. Uh, their first ever game until, geez, way, way into the season. I want to say September. I guess it was like uh, 11 games into the season, but also off the field. And we're going to get into all those hijinks uh, around uh, uh, 32 owners, if you can believe it. None of them seemingly wanting to step up and run run the show, so to speak. Uh, a litany of uh, financial issues 
not uncommon for the WFL, but uh, perhaps uniquely so in the case of the Detroit Wheels. We'll get into all that. Uh, and, um, you know, what what happened to the team, basically, which was disbandment, uh, uh, disbanding of the team by the league uh, in uh, about uh, you know three quarters of the way into the season. Um, an incredible story, even by WFL standards. And we get into all of it. Uh, with our guest Mark Speck coming up in uh, just a couple of moments. Of course, you want to stick around for that. And uh, as we've uh, suggested uh, in past episodes when we talk about the WFL, you want to make sure that you go to uh, two in particular of our great sponsors uh, who uh, specialize in uh, in things uh, relating to the WFL. One, of course, is OldSchoolShirts.com, where you can use promo code GOODSEATS for 10% off all of your purchases. You'll find a whole host of WFL stuff. Uh, including the Southmen, including the Detroit Wheels, great uh, uh, distressed-looking uh, T-shirts with the uh, the original logos of both of those teams and many of the other WFL teams, for that matter. That's OldSchoolShirts.com. Make sure you use the promo code GOODSEATS and make sure that you get your 10% discount uh, for doing so when you check out using that code. And uh, you also want to check out 503 Sports. That's 503-Sports.com. Uh, they fancy themselves as the king of throwbacks. And, of course, uh, the WFL uh, and all its grandeur uh, is uh, is represented uh, uh, and then some uh, it, when you go there at 503-sports.com and use the promo code SEATS and you can get 10% off all of your purchases there as well. And not only will you find a Detroit Wheels t-shirt uh, and other WFL franchise t-shirts with the great logos and color schemes, you will also find some lovingly crafted uh, uh, jerseys. Uh, that are uh, uh, basically personalizable and uh, uniquely crafted uh, for 503 Sports. You will see the uh, the logo of 503 Sports for that sort of a uh, authentic authenticity uh, certification in there, and it's a, it's a great uh, thing that uh, that 503 is doing. They do it also for uh, teams uh, no longer with us and uh, from the USFL and the World League of American Football. But frankly, these uh, these jerseys, uh, these uh, recreated. Uh, replicas of the uh, old WFL jerseys are something to behold. And uh, I don't, you're not going to find them anywhere else, but 503 sports. And again, that's 503 sports.com. Use the promo code seats and you will get 10% off all of your purchases, not only just for WFL stuff, but everything else uh, across the site at uh, 503 sports.com. And so uh, there you go. You've got two great places to, uh, to check out and uh, remember Great stuff from the uh, from the WFL. There was some great stuff and there's some amazing stories, some of which we're going to get into right now with this week's return guest. His name is Mark Speck. And uh, here is our chat that we had about the uh, woeful Detroit wheels uh, that we had just a couple of weeks ago. Enjoy. Arguably, you're sort of the king of WFL researchers, right? You've got a number of books out there. Uh, we've talked to, in a previous episode on, on the Florida Blazers as, as one of those teams. Uh, obviously, you've got a couple of other research efforts around the league generally uh, and overall. So what is it about the Detroit Wheels that sort of rose to the top of your uh, priority list, given all of the uh, teams, frankly, you know, uh, arguably uh, with their own rich stories to be told? Oh yeah, I mean there's stories all around the league. You know, and they, you know the Blazers were the first one because they, you know, because of the fact of how they overcame all the adversity to uh, win a lot of games, almost win the championship. But as I'm digging into this research more and more, 
you know, and this story of Detroit just really jumped out at me as this this team did like if if you could do it wrong, they did it wrong. I mean, everything was was messed up from the start. Um, ownership problems, uh, personnel problems, facility problems, money problems. I mean, it was a laundry list of things that went wrong. That uh, unfortunately, like the unlike the Blazers, this team couldn't overcome that, and they just had too much going on. They lost a lot of games close, a lot of games late, but uh, they just lost a lot of games. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that they were dealing with a lot of things. I would think a lot more than probably any other team in the league. I mean, you know, we touched on, um, you know, how league-wide the problems were, that the league really couldn't prop up that many teams as they could if they had like one or two problems. They had probably a dozen problems in a dozen cities, and it just got to the point where they couldn't, prop up everybody and some teams just fell by the wayside and Detroit was really one of those. All right. Well, so, so let's put this in context again for, for our listeners who are, uh, let's say uh, new to the WFL or, or just newly discovering some of our conversations with this, uh, this, uh, interview. So, uh, maybe a little bit of a, a background again on sort of the, uh, the approach that Gary Davidson at Al were, uh, trying to put together a number of, uh, franchises for this uh, startup league circa uh, late 1973, right? Looking for markets uh, and franchises off the backs of uh, of two supposedly already successful, quote unquote, uh, challenger leagues in the ABA and the uh, uh, the WHA. Um, give us a sense of sort of how franchises were being uh, created uh, or solicited for this uh, upstart football league. Well, Davidson's plan was to just have this, and in a in a nutshell, a world football league. He really wanted to have a European division. He wanted to go into Asia. He wanted to go into Mexico. This was his grand scheme, um, but it wound up he couldn't even pay the bills in places like Shreveport and Charlotte. But it was just the idea. He had these grand plans of, of taking on the NFL. He thought the NFL was fat and arrogant at the time because they had survived the AFL. They were pretty much, uh, you know, full of themselves, according to him. He thought it was a good time for a uh, for a rival to, to come in and start taking, uh, you know, a place in pro football in the landscape, see if they could uh, rival the NFL. He had done it, like you said, a couple of times before, the ABA in basketball, the WHA in hockey. Uh, they were fairly successful. They were still around. And he thought, well, you know, let's try the big boys, which was the NFL at the time and still is. And he really thought he could take on the the league. He had some teams that were um, going head to head with the uh, with the NFL in Philadelphia, New York, uh, Chicago. Then he had other um, markets like Portland, uh, Orlando, uh, Memphis, Birmingham that uh, weren't NFL uh, franchise homes. But he thought that that would work. Um, again, as we've talked before in our in our uh, discussions about the league. He just didn't do uh, what you call your background checks, didn't look into the ownership as well as he should have, and he certainly did that in the, in the case of Detroit. That was probably the, I don't know, they, it was just a real you know, mess up from the, from the word go as far as Detroit was concerned. All right, well, so let's talk about Detroit uh, as a market for the WFL, because even before we get into the wheel story, I guess there was an entreaty uh, from either the league office or from uh, folks in Detroit about being part of this WFL, uh, 
uh, prior to uh, what we're going to get into um, with a <laughs> characteristically <laughs> shady character uh, looking for a franchise. Yeah, I mean, it was they well, they wanted they wanted to try to get some big markets. You know, they had New York, they had Chicago, um, they had Philadelphia. Um, they thought Detroit would be good. They had the uh, so one of their sponsors was uh, Chevrolet, which of course Detroit's the home of uh, the automobile. They thought that would be a good fit. Um, they had some guy named Clarence Bud Huckle who started uh, the ball rolling, so to speak, or at least he claims he did back in the '73 where he approached Davidson, Davidson flew into Detroit, met with him. He said, I'm going to, um, I want to be a part of this franchise. I'm going to do all this groundwork. He did all the research, um, checked into things, um, talked to people, supposedly had some money, uh, um, gathered up with some different investors. Um, then he got, uh, kind of, uh, talked into joining this other group, which, uh, really wasn't much better. Uh, but it was uh, a bunch of people that got together. And uh, as the, the famous saying from uh, John Bassett, who owned the Memphis team, said, I think uh, 33 guys got together and put 15 cents in to buy a team. And, uh, you know, as the time went on, as uh, it showed, Bassett really wasn't that far off. I mean, it was kind of a joke at the time, but uh, as it turned out from some of the evidence they, they dug up with the bankruptcies and the, and the court uh, filings and everything else, how much they had, how little they had actually put in to the league uh, at the beginning of the uh, of the process to start owning a team. It was it was an amazingly small amount. But this seems to be like a pattern, right? I mean, and I'm wondering, you know, th- this idea of, of trying to find uh, local ownership for a franchise model uh, for something perhaps maybe rushed, right? Uh, I, I wonder. And we've kind of talked about this in previous episodes. I wonder if the, I don't know, let's call it hubris of Gary Davidson, right, in his uh, admittedly compelling idea, right, to challenge the NFL and 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 do it with, uh, you know, uh, some moxie and some rules changes and all that kind of stuff. I don't think anybody sort of, I think a lot of people sort of fall in love with the idea. But it also strikes me, again, in hindsight, right, that a lot of the sort of lead up to starting in 1974, it almost feels to me like, you know, the idea almost kind of didn't get sort of, I guess, uh, 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 congealed until, you know, well along into 1973, which hardly seems like enough time to get all your ducks in a row uh, operationally and and maybe compromised uh, sort of the the search for, you know, uh, moneyed enough people to, to actually you know, birth franchises of substance. Yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, so many people have talked about the fact that if they'd have waited one more year in 75, they might have been better off. But like you said, they rushed into things. They rushed into ownership groups. He said, okay, I'll put some money up here in this in this city. I'll put some money up in here. I mean, he did luck out with some good owners. He had John Bassett in, in, uh, in Memphis. Uh, Bill Putnam down in Birmingham was not too bad. Um, and Southern California had uh, Sam Battistone, who wound up owning the New Orleans Jazz in the NBA. Um, so, you know, you had some good uh, owners, but he lucked out with those. But a lot of them, he just rushed into it, said, OK, uh, you said you got the money. All right. I believe you. Let's get started and, and rush this in. And it was, you know, like you said, very late in 73 when things started to get the ball rolling. They wanted to start playing in, in July of 74. That's. You know, nine months might be good to, you know, 
for a uh, for a human to be born, but for a football league, that's really really a Russian thing. So they, uh, I think they just passed over some things that they should have been checking on. They should have been doing to make this a little bit more of a of a good strong league with strong ownership and they had it in some cities but so many of them didn't so i think that was really one of their big problems was rushing things along instead of maybe maybe waiting to 75 um it might have helped them i don't know it's hindsight like you said 2020 but you never know they may have had uh, better luck getting better owners getting better teams together and uh you know waiting another year and uh starting out you know, about 12 months later than they did. I think that would have, I think myself, I think it would have helped them. Well, look, it's also, we, we've uh, sort of hinted at this before as well, too. The the economy at the time in the United States, not necessarily the strongest, right, in the early 1970s. And, and you could make the argument that just the whole idea of an enterprise of uh, a new fledgling football league itself was perhaps uh, ill-suited for uh, for the economy at the time and disposable income and, and, and the like. Oh, yeah, like definitely. I mean, we were in a recession that didn't really end until the early 80s. Um, and it was, you know, the stagflation, they called it, because the, the economy was stagnant. You know, we were putting up with Watergate. That was going on at the time. Uh, Vietnam was still going on. It was just a bad time in the country. And, and like you said, without that disposable income that fans would have, normally have to go watch a game, or uh, an owner might be able to raise some capital, he just could not do that. So that just made things a little bit more difficult uh, as far as I, you know, I wouldn't call it the main reason it failed, but I, I would definitely put it on the list of, of reasons why the WFL ultimately failed was just that the economy was just in such a shambles at the time. All right. So, so Davidson and Friends announces the formation of this WFL in October of 73. And by the middle of December, I think it's December 13th, 1973 in particular, uh, along comes this announcement of a team for Detroit. Uh, do you want to kind of walk us through sort of perhaps how that came about and and who the various people involved in putting this bid together for this Detroit franchise came about? Well, you know, as I stated before, it was Bud Huckle, and he he was working at a as a therapist, I think, at a hospital somewhere. He had gotten these said he had supposedly gotten these hospital guys to back him up, but in December. Um, they, uh, he was approached by these other owners, this other group that wanted to own the team. Um, they, they told him, gave him promises that they were going to pay him a, a, a certain salary, uh, as a consultant or something like that, uh, to join the team, to join that, um, you know, franchise, uh, ownership. Um, if he would just give up his plans to do it and uh, the team that they, they, the ownership that they wound up with, they had 33 owners. Now, 33 owners may sound silly at first look. And yeah, it is because you, you've got 33 people who really can't decide on anything. But the real problem with it was that nobody stepped forward to say, I'm the go-to guy. I mean, Al Davis is the go-to guy in Oakland. He was, I mean, he had investors, he had minority owners, but Al Davis was the go-to guy, Ralph Wilson in Buffalo. I mean, the list goes on and on that all these ownership teams, whether they have minority owners, had that one go-to person and the wheels never did. They had the 33 owners that were basically just, okay, well, what do we do? Cause they didn't have that person who was strong in the, in, in the front office that would, would lead the team. Um, they had, uh, you know, Marvin Gaye, the singer from, uh, from Detroit, from Motown was one of the owners. 
Esther Edwards was the vice president of Motown Records. Um, Mike Illich, who wound up, uh, you know, being a part owner of the, the Red Wings and the, and the Tigers later in the, uh, I think it was in the 80s when he come out, come in and more of a forefront. Uh, he was part of it, but they had 33 people. Again, good at, build, at uh, building their own kind of business smart people in their own way. But as far as owning a football team, they had absolutely no clue. Uh, and again, because they had 33 owners with no strong leadership at the front, they just kind of, you know, um, stumbled around for most of their existence, not knowing, really knowing what to do. And that I think hurt them more than anything. If somebody would have stepped forward, I think, and said, okay, I'm going to take the reins. I'm the person Esther Edwards did for a while and the franchise actually did stabilize for a while when she took that role on, but she didn't maintain it. She was so busy with, you know, being with Motown records. Mike Illich was not really that well known yet. I mean, you know, like I said, later in the eighties when he uh, became involved with the Tigers and the Red Wings, he was a little bit more um, of a, of a, of an owner that was a, a famous owner at the time he was really just getting started. So he really wasn't the person to, uh, to go to, so I think that hurt him more than anything else was just having 33 owners without that uh, leader in the, at the at the forefront saying, I'm in charge, come to me with anything, and I will be running things. I'll be consulting the other 32, but I'm the, uh, the one that's leading them, and they never had that. And I think that was one of their big drawbacks that they, uh, that they had. They were really pushed by uh, the mayor-elect was Coleman Young at the time of Detroit, he was looking at a uh, a downtown stadium project that had been put on the back burner after a couple of years. Um, the problem was that, you know, it was going to be for the Lions and the Tigers, but the Lions were moving to Pontiac in 75, so he really couldn't justify having one team, the Tigers, being a tenant in a brand-new multi-million dollar uh, facility downtown. He needed another tenant. That's why he pushed for the wheels. He said he could get them in Tiger Stadium, get them a lease. Sort of wound up, he couldn't do that. And uh, But Coleman Young was definitely behind it as far as trying to get that team in there. So they'd have two tenants, so that would justify the idea of having a new multi-million dollar uh, facility downtown in Detroit. All right, so we see some of the political uh, interests and uh, alignments happening. But uh, so, uh, how does this uh, group of uh, 31, 32 individuals uh, to invest uh, uh, come together? This is a guy named Lewis Lee, who seems to be sort of the the ringleader, so to speak, of of getting this sort of cabal together. Uh, is there any sort of background on him and 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 why perhaps he's uh, so gung ho and or approaching it this way versus other ways? Well, he, I, I think they just needed numbers as far as people instead of instead of dollars. Um, I mean, these business people were were you know owned businesses, but they weren't like corporations that kind of thing. You know, unless you're talking Esther Edwards, who was in Motown. Um, but as far as their businesses, they were small businesses. They were small businessmen and women who uh, were in the Detroit area. Lewis Lee was a, a lawyer who uh, had played at Michigan um, and was interested in football, interested in bringing a team there. He kind of, you know, took the lead as far as trying to find owners. Um, he didn't really have a lot of luck as far as, like I said, people with deep pockets, people that own corporations and big companies, where it was more mom and pop kind of um, industries and mom and pop companies that 
they found, which is probably why they needed so many so many owners because they just couldn't put up the total number of, of funds they needed. And it turned out, like I said later, when the uh, court uh, papers came out, how much how little they had actually put into the franchise at the beginning, um, instead of the entire amount that they were uh, required to put into for for ownership. So I, again, you know, just trying to have those numbers that make them look a little bit more solvent. And it didn't really work because they none of them really had the deep pockets that they could to sustain a franchise and run a franchise and the experience to do that. So, uh, like I said, some of the other teams did. Detroit had nobody that had any kind of previous experience running a sports franchise, let alone football. And again, that hurt them um, greatly all the way through the season. Well, it almost it almost feels like that uh, much of the emphasis was on uh, corralling uh, the investment to uh, to to buy and, and own the franchise, right? Versus you know w- once that's happened and once the you know the light bulbs, uh, the flash bulbs go off and the announcement of uh, with grandiosity of this team coming to Detroit, uh, the reality I think sets in is like okay, well, uh, how do you run this thing, right? And and just owning the franchise doesn't necessarily mean that you've got the capital to uh, actually run the thing. So maybe maybe we can start to segue a little bit into sort of how the actual team sort of comes together, the front office comes together, and hell, where, where the hell are they getting the money to kind of fund operations, so to speak? Well, it turns out, um, you know, when the, when the court papers came out, they still owed $820,000 to the WFL. And because they put up a total, not per, per owner, but a total of $70,000. So they they had no money at all. They were just paying things out of pocket, like a like it was a club football team or a semi pro football team. They would just pay things when a, when expenses came up. They didn't have like a a large you know bank account where they could withdraw money from for um, for expenses. Um, they were paying things on the fly, just you know daily expenses here and there, even training camp. Um, and their 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 money was ran out fairly, fairly soon. Um, and there, one of their things was to try to save money was to, they were going to not going to pay any more than $10,000 for any player, uh, which was the minimum salary in the NFL, I think at the time. So they, they said, Nope, we're not going to pay any more than 10,000. They finally, uh, um, changed their minds on that because they weren't being able to sign anybody. Um, because nobody was going to pay, you know, pay for that or, or play for that, excuse me, uh, instead of, you know, trying to find some really top talent, they, uh, you know, were just going to get people that were, you know, minor, minor league guys, uh, marginal college players, uh, guys that have been cut by the NFL, that kind of thing. Um, they tried to sign uh, John Merritt from Tennessee State as their head coach. Uh, the main thing for that was they wanted to kind of get him a package deal to see if he could convince uh, his star player, Tutal Jones, who was the number three draft pick of Detroit, to also come to the team, but Merritt said that uh, he was not going to go to Detroit at the uh, money they were offering. They would have had to offer a lot more, um, and they didn't. So he uh, turned them down. They tried to get John David Crow, who was an uh, assistant coach for the Lions, who played for the Lions back in the day. Earl Morrill's name was bandied about. Um, he didn't uh, wind up uh, signing, uh, even though he had been business interest in the area. So they wound up with uh, Dan Boister, who was a college coach. And again, this was another thing that they really, you know, didn't do well, was they hired a college coach uh, who had no experience in pro football, and his entire staff turned out to be all 
people who had, had absolutely no NFL or pro football experience either. So you had this inexperienced coaching staff, uh, ownership with very little money at their disposal to, to run the team. And you just had a, a completely inexperienced uh, front office coaching staff. Um, everybody that was running the team really didn't know how. I mean, actually really didn't know. how. I mean, we talked about uh, the Florida Blazers. Rami Loud at least had that NFL experience where he was an assistant coach. He was a director of player personnel. He was a prospective owner with the NFL. He was at least had some kind of experience, you know, with knowledge of how to run a team. Whereas this team had absolutely nobody in the front office or in the coaching staff who knew what they were doing. Um, a lot of the players that I talked to and I read about complained about Boyster that when they lost so many games late, they were the best. What was the saying was that they were the best 59-minute football team in the league. They lost so many games at the last minute because Boyster would not call, uh, put them in a prevent defense. They would get beaten by a deep pass a long bomb or something like that because he would not put in a prevent defense at the end of the game to try to stop the other team and they wound up losing I'm, I don't know it's, it was probably like 10 of their games probably at the at the very last minute um, and so yeah they just they just had a, a really bad time of it again it was that inexperience both at the uh, ownership level and at the coaching level um, that really hurt the team and sabotaged them and, and uh and uh, stop them from being uh, successful at all. And Dan Boyster was, uh, at the time, the um, uh, the head coach of uh, Eastern Michigan uh, University, right? Yes, that's where he, they got him from. And, uh, again, you know, I mean, nice enough guy, seemed nice, you know, nice enough. Some of the players had respect for him and, and, and liked him, but he just was not, you know, experienced enough to run a team. Um, and, yes, he came from Eastern Michigan, which – where they wound up playing was in Eastern Michigan uh, because of the fact they could not get a uh, lease with the Tiger Stadium. The Tigers and the Lions had an ironclad agreement. They were the ones that were going to play there. Uh, the, the, the the lease actually went to the extreme of that because the Lions were leaving and starting in 75, nobody could play in Tiger Stadium. No football team could play in Tiger Stadium in 1975, even though the Lions were already going to be in Pontiac. So they couldn't have gotten into Tiger Stadium until 1976 at the earliest. So they had to find a place. They had Wayne State in the city, which was very small, about 20,000. Um, they finally wound up going to Eastern Michigan. I don't know if it was Boyster who, who uh, kind of put a bug in their ear or what it might have been. But again, that was in Ypsilanti, uh, Michigan, which was 37 miles from Detroit, um, out in the, as, as Davidson liked to call it, the boonies. Um, he, he was upset because he, he was convinced and he was told by the ownership that he would, you know, they would be able to get into Tiger Stadium. He basically said he was lied to and said that, you know, they couldn't. And uh, they tried all the way through the season. I mean, they kept approaching uh, John Fetzer, who owned the Tigers. Uh, he kept asking him if they, could, if they could lease it. He kept turning them down. So they wound up playing out in Ypsilanti, which, again, was a very small venue. Um, nobody wanted to make a trip out there. It was very, you know, it's, it's you know, maybe 45 minutes to an hour out there. Um, they, they rode buses and, 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 and hired buses to take some fans out, but they didn't, that didn't really help. So it was just, again, just, just uh, not a very good situation. 
um, all around, um, not being able to get Tiger Stadium again with the ownership, the bill money. It was just, it would probably, uh, as I, I stated earlier, probably the worst situation in the WFL, which is saying a lot. Well, well, so yeah, so that's so so that's that's really interesting because it seems that so this is also I think we need to remind our viewers viewers yeah viewers at some point someday right so but listeners that uh, this was around the time where uh, uh, the Lions were uh, uh, ready to to move out to suburban Pontiac with the uh, construction of the Silver Dome um, and it's also very interesting I guess because it seems like there's almost some I don't know almost conspiratorial uh, uh, efforts to sort of prevent. Uh, this uh, uh, challenger league, uh, both from Major League Baseball's, I guess, perception in the Tigers and, and Tiger Stadium, as well as the, the, the Lions, right? It's almost it's almost like they uh, sort of understood, uh, perhaps, that there was going to be some kind of uh, existential threat to the NFL uh, and and their uh, preclusion of uh, of any other tenant, football wise, to be in that in that stadium, despite the fact that they were leaving it. Oh yeah, no, I mean, you know, some of the, uh, the the comments were kind of odd that they made that. You know, they didn't want somebody tearing up the turf in July and August, even though the Lions have been playing exhibition games there for years. I'm not sure why that was a problem. They couldn't have another team in there. But, yeah, some of it was. Again, the NFL did not want a a rival. They had just put the AFL um, threat behind them. They had merged with them. They certainly didn't want another five years later to have another threat coming up to them, uh, raising prices, raising salaries. Um, bringing their um, their product down a little bit because they're losing players, they're losing coaches, um, and it, it was something that you know. It's just the idea that anybody would do that. Any any established business would probably try to do a little bit of you know negative press and accentuate that and exaggerate that if they could to make them look worse because they don't want them in there. They don't want them to be successful. They don't want them to, to join the uh, pro football landscape, which like I said, they just got over the AFL and it was still in their minds. Like I said, five years later, and they just didn't want to have to deal with that again for another, who knows how many years. And again, losing money because of the salaries going up, um, you know, TV revenues, who knows where that would have went, but it was just the idea that, yeah, that had to play a part of it. It really did, um, because you know you read how you know just the negative news was. If you're going back to the old newspapers um, from the, especially the NFL cities, they really you know accentuated that uh, um, negative news about anything that happened. And yes, there were a lot of negatives, but you know it's just the idea that they just made it seem worse just by uh, talking about it all the time, almost on a daily basis. So uh, uh, the financial constraints on uh, paying players uh, set up by the general management of the team um, already sort of not boding well. Uh, they participate in the draft. Uh, they don't seem to have a, a fairly good uh, uh, rate of, uh, of convincing people that they have drafted to join the team. So how, is, how are the players being found? Because uh, there's some... Uh, a really sort of, uh, I guess, sort of famous uh, uh, open call tryout, right? Uh, that uh, that coach uh, Boster and 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 uh, his uh, his his team were sort of sort of putting out there. It almost feels like uh, a bit of uh, desperation already in the early days, trying to find decent players to play. Oh yeah, and it's, and a lot of that went back to that idea that they were going to pay ten thousand dollars a player, so they were having a hard time signing players. I mean, other teams were. 
Another thing that they didn't do was they didn't sign the future contract. They were the one team in the WFL that said, we're not going to sign players the future contracts. All the other teams did that. It gave them some publicity, gave them a, a little bit of a boost because the the other, you know, the football fans uh, around the country were saying, hey, these guys may be in business. They're signing all these famous players. The Detroit Wheels did not do this. They were the one team that didn't. They um, they uh, didn't sign anybody. And and I, Sonny Brand- our, I'm sorry, remind our audience what these futures contracts uh, were about uh, relative to the uh, the NFL, et cetera. Yeah, the future contracts were something that they would sign, uh, sign players from the NFL that would be delivered, and they would be able to start playing for the WFL once their contracts for with their team current teams ran out. They had the uh, the, Mem- the Memphis Three, the Big Three from Miami, uh, Larry Zonka, Jim Kick, and Paul Warfield, who signed with then Toronto would turn out to be Memphis at the end of February, and uh, they were going to start playing in '75. That's when their their contracts would ru- uh, run out at the end of the '74 season uh, with Miami. They were going to start playing in a future date, so they called them future contracts. And uh, every team signed somebody like this. Um, the Detroit Wheels, again, did not do that. Sonny Grandellis, um, who was the general manager, said, I'm not going to sign something I can't deliver on. He might have been uh, admirable that way as far as, you know, looking at it that way. But, you know, as far as a business deal, probably not. Um, but, again, they probably couldn't sign the players because of the bonuses they would have to play pay out. And, again, it, you're right, they had this uh, tryout, open tryout and early on where they had 660 people show up um, and they had, you know, a guy came with his wife, um, you know, looked like bartenders, construction workers, uh, small people, big people. Uh, one guy said that, you know, if I, if I, he handed a note to one of the coaches and said, you know, if I can't be a player, could I be the water boy? Um, so, you know, you had these six, it was just a, a zoo. I think they wound up signing two of the players that made it actually its training camp. It was a running, couple of running backs that were local uh, products that actually made it to training camp. They didn't make it to the team uh, during the season, but they made it to training camp. But uh, two out of 660 really isn't a very good, very good ratio. And they had a few tryout camps then a little bit later where they had three or four. They had one for kickers. They had one for uh, regular players. Um, and those were, again, were just kind of, you know, they didn't really get much out of those either. So, it was just uh, the idea if they would have just up there, you know, because of the fact that they'd have had money in the first place and they'd been able to pay more for players, they would have had to go to these extreme measures of trying to, to sign players to having open tryouts to where, you know, 660 people are showing up and two of them get signed. So, I mean, it's just something that if they had that money to begin with, had a little bit more experience as how to run a football team, uh, this kind of thing wouldn't have happened and wouldn't have sabotaged the team. All right, so how, how did they find players ultimately, and, and what were some of the standout players that uh, that did ultimately get uh, uh, brought into the Wheels uh, uh, training camp and or made the uh, final roster? Well, you know, they did finally start upping their, their price and said, you know, okay, we can't sign guys for just $10,000 a piece because nobody's going to play for us. So he they did get, you know, guys from the CFL. They got guys from the, you know, that bounced around the NFL um, you know, they got Bubba Weish, who was Sam Weish's brother, who had played in the CFL. He was a quarterback, um, fairly solid player, had played very well for a while in the in the CFL. Um, you know, they they 
as far as big names, um, you know, they really didn't have that many. A lot of them were young guys. A lot of them were uh, rookies. A lot of them were uh, players that just kind of, um, you know, they found here and there. Uh, but as far as, like, um, any kind of big names, they really didn't sign a whole lot. They probably – I mean, I, I don't want to say it was the worst roster, but, you know, they it was just a, a roster of players that really didn't have any, you know, value as far as marketing, as far as, you know, I, I recognize that guy. I know him. You know, they had uh, Carl Taby, who had been cut by the Redskins and a couple other teams, uh, Gene Trosh, who had played for the Chiefs back in the – 69 when they won the Super Bowl, but hadn't played since. Um, they got uh, Wimpy Winther, the center from Mississippi, who had been uh, Archie Manning center at uh, Old Miss when they went in college together. Uh, but really, a lot of no names. They, uh, you know, they had Booth Lustig, who was a kicker from the minor leagues and for a couple of NFL teams. Um, but a lot of them were guys that you know really weren't big names. And because of that, they didn't have any kind of, you know, drawing power as far as, you know, Memphis had, well, okay, we'll, we'll have the big three coming in. They probably said, you know, they, they were able to sign players that were at least recognizable. But then again, another thing that, that really hurt them was just having a roster of players that really weren't very uh, famous, well-known, and you know, who are these guys, you know, and that kind of thing. So, uh, again, that hurt them too, was having a roster full of, of players that, were basically just, you know, NFL um, cuts, um, CFL guys, um, rookies, that kind of thing. All right. Well, so they, they open up uh, in July in uh, in Memphis, and uh, they don't sort of set the world on fire per se, right? They uh, they lose, I think it was like 34 to 15, and, and uh, although Bubba Weish had, uh, uh, you know, a touchdown pass uh, uh, sort of near uh, – near sort of uh, the, the third quarter of the game, the um, it was pretty clear that there wasn't a whole lot sort of uh, of, uh, of talent and or uh, certainly on the running side of things. Um, but maybe we can get into the debut of the team uh, at home, uh, quote unquote, uh, the next week, right? So July, I think it's July 17th, 74, uh, the wheels are hosting the Florida Blazers. And uh, maybe you can sort of give some uh, color, I guess, to... Uh, how that first ever home game uh, sort of sort of went because it doesn't seem like a lot of people made that trip out to Ypsilanti. No, they didn't. Uh, they uh, they wound up. They were hoping for a, a sellout, which would have been around twenty twenty five thousand. They wound up with ten thousand people. Um, it was just a, not a very good uh, not a very good crowd. They were very disappointed in it. Um, they you know tried to put up a brave front um, and try to say you know hey. This is just the first game. But, you know, usually your first game is like people are at least for the curiosity factor are going to come out and see your team, see what this is like, see what this is all about. Is this as good as NFL? Is this going to entertain me? Is this going to be good football? And usually that's when you can get your good crowd as your first home opener. It really should be. But they didn't even have that going for them. They, they, it was 10,631 people who showed up, which was about well, half. They brought all these portable bleachers out and, Seven people sat in one set, and one guy sat in another set, and it was just the idea that they just didn't have that money coming in at first, um, you know, with a good crowd in their in their uh, opener. Like I said, usually that's your that's your big uh, big game of the year is when you open the season, um, and you should be having a, a good crowd. Like I said, just if nothing else, the curiosity factor to have people come in and say, you know, hey, let's see what this is like. 
let's see if this is going to be as good as the NFL or even something even close that's going to entertain us. And, you know, they had problems with uh, um, different times. I think one newspaper, one, one, one report said a game started at 7.30. The other one said at 8.30 um, because they uh, said it was going to be a sellout. People didn't make the trip because what's the point if the game was already sold out? I'm not going to drive all the way out to Ypsilanti to see it, you know, to not be able to get into the game. So I think that hurts them as well as all the talk of, you know, hey, we're going to, uh, we're going to sell out. Um, and if somebody was thinking about, well, hey, maybe I'll go out, and they're saying, well, it's sold out, well, then there's no sense in driving all the way out there, you know, to get a ticket. So um, I think that hurt them as well. It was just a lot of, of, of bad uh, bad vibes around the, the team from the very beginning. Well, it was also, I think, the, uh, the worst uh, attended of all of the home openers across the league, right? So I, I got a sense that not only was the, the uh, Detroit ownership uh, concern, but also the league office. Oh, sure. Yeah, I mean, it was. It was the worst the worst opener in the league. Um, the, the week before they played in Memphis, Memphis uh, um, attracted 30,000 or 30,000 there to their game. Uh, you know, Birmingham had 53,000. Um, you know, they, a lot of them draw, uh, I think Chicago had something around 30,000. Uh, Southern California had something around that. So yeah, I mean it was the worst opening crowd of the of the short of the, you know the short existence of the season, and uh, yeah, I mean again you're you're hearing this nobody's going out to the games they're losing they lost both the game they lost to Florida again late um, on a late touchdown they they went ahead late in the game but couldn't hold the lead so um, you know a lot of this was going against them. Um, and it wasn't helping them at all that, you know, these kind of things were happening, that the crowds were small, um, and the games, the, the team just wasn't very good. I mean, they lost really big to Memphis and, again, lost late to uh, Florida. So give us a sense of how the press and the fans and uh, and the league, I guess, are, are looking at Detroit. Because, you know, it, it, not only on the field are they not winning any games – uh, but it seems to be pretty clear uh, and maybe sort of leaking out that um, the financial pressures are uh, starting to uh, to weigh on the team and, and are and, and worse, some publicity around that versus, say, focusing on, uh, you know, coming out to the game and, and the excitement that they're going to see or hopefully going to see. Yeah. And, and the thing was, it turned out that that crowd, as small as it was, was the biggest crowd they had all year. So, um yeah, by the fifth, fourth or fifth week, they were already the owners were already looking to sell. They were saying, "We got to get out of this." And Davidson knew he had to get them. Uh, he had to get some kind of solvent ownership in there because he didn't have it in there. He knew this was it was probably the one of the first um, you know really trouble spots um, in the league. But you know this was uh, this was something that had to be addressed. Um, they started looking for ownership. Um, one of the first people to start looking at it was Upton Bell, um, who was from New England, who had been uh, with the Patriots. Uh, Bert Bell's son, um, he looked at uh, looked into it. He was willing to move the team to Charlotte. That was his first choice. He wound up moving the New York team, but he wanted to move the Detroit team down there. And when you first think about it, Detroit, uh, Charlotte wheels doesn't sound right until you realize that Charlotte's a really big NASCAR area. It still is. That would have made pretty good sense, but yeah, he was talking about he wanted to to move his team down there. Um, he was, uh, but he was dragging his feet because there was a lot of debts that he was going to have to uh, assume, 
He wasn't sure if he really wanted to do that, but he did have a stadium down there, um, you know, Charlotte Memorial Stadium, which was, uh, you know, set, um, I think it was around 25 or 30,000 people. He would have, you know, he said he was going to get good crowds. The Charlotte area was looking for football, um, and uh, he was uh, willing to move the team. He was in negotiations with it. Uh, but I think ultimately what happened was that, you know, with all the debt he would have had to assume that they were already losing money, that he just did not want to take it on. And eventually that he just dropped out as well as did uh, John DeLorean, the, uh, the automaker who uh, also uh, moved in and uh, said he had, uh, you know, an idea to keep the team in Detroit and to buy it. But again, he was scared off by the amount of debt that was out there that he needed to assume that the league was asking him to not only take over the team, but also to pay off all of its debts, which were extreme at the time. And he got cold feet as well. And uh, I think one of the players said, you know, um, you know, John DeLorean and uh, Upton Bell didn't become uh, good businessmen by throwing good money after bad. And I think that's what really turned them against actually in the, in the long run buying the team. But this seems like yet another sort of part of the pattern, right, of all these sort of WFL franchises, especially those uh, seemingly, uh, you know, challenged in their early weeks of existence, right, or, or at least on the field. I mean, I, I, I'm trying to get a sense of, I guess, the pattern and as well in, in this particular situation. You know, what is that sort of moment in the room or in, in, the, in the franchise when uh, the ownership, uh, I don't know, starts to panic and look for the exits versus trying uh, to kind of shore up the current situation, you know, get through the season uh, either through extra money or whatever. Because it seems to me that, that uh, uh, Boyster, the coach and, and uh, the general manager, uh, Sonny uh, Grandalis, it was, you know, they were, they were chafing at the fact that they had no money or uh, to be able to either upgrade the team or, or, uh, it seems like even advertising was uh, kind of cut uh, in the process, right? It almost feels like there was a point in time in those sort of early uh, weeks of the season where uh, whatever ownership there was and or the the conversations around those 32 or so owners uh, was like, we need to abandon ship versus right the ship. Right. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. And, and Boyster and Grandelius, yeah, they were, they wanted to sign players. They had players that they knew that were out there that had been cut, that had been, you know, let go by either the CFL or the NFL. They wanted to, to sign them, but they just did not have the money to do it. They didn't have an advertising budget. They, Ray Hoser, I think was the guy's name who was the PR guy. His, his, his budget was actually zero. He had no budget. We knew that things were bad at that point. You know, this was again early in the season. They just didn't have the advertising. They couldn't print programs for some of the games. The players um, didn't have clean uniforms for for um, for practice or games. Uh, one of the players said he had to dry off with a couple T-shirts because they didn't have you know money to get laundry done because they couldn't pay their laundry bill. Um, players were already starting to move in together, like kind of a kind of a commune. Um, and then, you know, players were moving their families in together in case they did move, they were going to be able to get out real quick. Um, so yeah, it was just, it was really starting early in the season where things started to go south, where they knew that things weren't going to, going to be right. Um, none of the other, again, these were small business owners that were the owners. They didn't have the capital. They didn't have that strong person in the beginning at the front. 
um, to say, okay, I'm the go-to person. I've got the deep pockets here. I'm going to do this. Mike Illich, again, you know, looking back, you think, well, why did he take over? But at the time, he still wasn't the, the large figure that he became later with Little Caesars and then owning um, the Red Wings and the Tigers that he became about a decade later. So he was still kind of, you know, I, I don't want to say small potatoes, but he really hadn't built up the uh, reputation he had uh, about 10 years later to be able to go in there and say, okay, well, I can do this and I can take it over. 10 years later, yeah, he probably would have done that and been able to be the person at the forefront. But without that person, without the money coming in because nobody had it because, again, they were all running small mom-and-pop businesses instead of big corporations, they just did not have the money. And so it was Davidson was saying, you know, we got to find somebody. Again, it was Bell and DeLorean who were uh, two of the people they had one guy who wanted to move the team to Louisville, Kentucky. Um, they were talking about moving the team to Shreveport, Louisiana, hiring Paul Dietzel, who was the head coach at uh, LSU, and trying to get Terry Bradshaw to sign to kind of give it a Louisiana flavor. Um, Jackson, Mississippi, they were looking there. They were looking at Little Rock, Arkansas. So they were looking everywhere, trying to find some place to go to either move this team or sell it to somebody else because it was, it was just trouble from the start. We're going to take a quick, brief pause, and uh, we want to remind you that our friends at Audible uh, are offering to you, our listeners, an opportunity to get a free audiobook download uh, from their amazing array of over 190,000 titles to choose from. Uh, when you go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats, and that's the place to go to get your free audiobook download, courtesy of us and Audible. Uh, and uh, it's something you can cancel at any time and you can uh, keep the book for as long as your device uh, exists. And like I said before, there's just a ton of choices uh, available to you to burn up that free credit, uh, including a bunch in the realm of our forgotten sports little genre here, uh, including uh, in the realm of basketball. If you fancy yourself a fan of the old ABA, for example, uh, two great books on the great Julia Serving that might be uh, worth uh, uh, using your credit for. One, of course, is the... Uh, uh, the Rise and Rise of Julia Serving. It's called Doc, and it's written by Vincent Malazzi and uh, narrated by David Cremet. You could use your credit for that book, uh, and it's a great sort of uh, interview-style uh, 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 background on the uh, life and times of Dr. J uh, from, uh, from all sides. Uh, but if that's not good enough for you, why not try the autobiography? It's called Dr. J, the autobiography, of course. It's written by Dr. J in, in concert with uh, Carl Greenfeld. And it's narrated by Dr. J himself, Julius Irving. Uh, and uh, you could use your credit for that book, as well as, like I said, thousands and thousands of other books, not just only in basketball and basketball history, but in a whole host of genres and topics. By all means, give them a try. Why don't you? It's risk-free, for God's sakes. Audibletrial.com slash good seats. Yes, audibletrial.com slash good seats. That's the link. Uh, and that's where you're going to get your free audiobook download. Again, you can cancel at any time. And once you do download that book for free, and uh, after you cancel it, if you if you choose to do that, it's yours to keep. So you can enjoy uh, in perpetuity for as long as your device lives. Uh, they download a book free and gratis, courtesy of uh, yours truly here at Good Seats Still Available and our friends at Audible. Thank you, Audible. We appreciate it. And uh, we appreciate you uh, joining our conversation once again. 
It seems to me, though, that even though the the, the, the players, uh, sorry, the team wasn't doing all that well, at least record-wise, uh, that they were still a relatively competitive team, right? You kind of alluded to it before, and almost seems like, uh, like in some of our other conversations, they were, to the best of their ability, key, key term, uh, trying to rise to the occasion and uh, and not let those distractions of uh, management and the small crowds and the occasional uh, uh, paycheck uh, actually get in the way of them uh, performing on on the field, which I think to me is kind of a, a sort of a time honed uh, uh, sense that uh, players want to play. Right, it's this dream of playing pro football, uh, and uh, you know sometimes you sort of throw the uh, "Quote unquote distractions of the day to day real life uh, to kind of uh, to make that dream happen." Oh yeah, no, I mean that was their that was the thing they wanted to play the game of pro football. That was their dream. They'd gone through college. They wanted to play pro ball, um, and uh, they had that that drive to play. Whether or not they were getting paid, or whether or not the 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 team was doing well, they still wanted to play. They they hung together. Um, the players uh, that uh, you know by all accounts, hung together. They didn't have any kind of internal squabbles where they were having any kind of problems internally as far as players getting on each other's case or anything like that or, or any kind of a split or any kind of a divide amongst the team. They hung together. Um, I think that they, they, in fact, said that it probably brought, brought them closer together, all the adversity they were going through, and it probably did. Um, and it did. They lost a lot of games late. Um, they already got blown out twice, and that was by Memphis and the uh, New York Stars back in September. And that, that game with New York was right after they found out they were going to be bankrupt, and the, the team was pretty much finished, and that's why they lost so, so badly to New York. But otherwise, it was by you know a touchdown or less, they lost almost all their games. Again, late in the, late in the game, um, they just uh, had that, you know, kind of a lot of bad luck, a lot of hard luck. You know, they were playing in a division with Memphis and Birmingham, two of the best teams in the league, where they had to play each of them twice. So you've got four games right there against, you know, the top team and the top two teams in the league. So it was just a, a fact that with the money, with the, uh, the the lack of coaching experience and the ownership experience, you also had just a, a quite a bit of bad luck. And some some teams just have that. Some teams have good luck where they can the, the football bounces the right way with the wheels. The football always seems to bounce the wrong way. So let's talk about B- uh, Bubba Weitray because he uh, obviously as a quarterback he he looked like he was gaining some somewhat of a decent reputation as being one of the better quarterbacks uh, in the league, despite sort of the on field record. Is it true? It seems to me that he do I have this right? He kind of reached out to Gary Davidson sort of a, in a forlorn kind of a desperation kind of move to kind of bring the financial issues to the attention of, of Davidson to, to to help right this ship, because uh, which seems to me the sort of the ultimate uh, uh, red flag uh, and perhaps the press around it, uh, not all positive. Yeah, no, he, he did. He sent a letter to Davidson. You got to give us some help. We need some help here. We, this team is going down the drain. Uh, please give us some kind of financial assistance. And again, like some of the other teams, there was promises made. Yep, Davidson's going to be there with, with with checks. He was supposed to be showing up at this game and that game. Never did. Um, so it was just the idea, again, that the league was pulled so thin with all the problems they were having. Again, if it would have been just Detroit, if it had been just Florida or, you know, another team, 
it, it might have been all right, but they had to try to prop up all these teams, and they really couldn't couldn't do that with with as much you know with as money money as every team was losing and having so many problems that they really didn't uh, uh, you know could didn't have a chance to try to you know fix everybody. And Davidson said he should, that when they started having problems early in the season, he said we should have just folded them and and uh, and uh, you know had a dispersal draft and, and drafted their players and and uh, you know got them out of the league. But again, they had Chevrolet was one of the big sponsors of the league, and they wanted uh, you know a team in Detroit because that's where they were centered. And a lot of pl- people have said that you know that's the only reason they stayed as long as they did in Detroit was because. Chevrolet was a big sponsor for the league, and they wanted them to stay. They didn't want them to move, didn't want them to fold or anything like that. So the players had to put up with all this stuff just so they could sell some spots to Chevrolet uh, during the game. So, yeah, it was – Bubba Weiss was definitely a team leader. Uh, came out, you know, not only on the field, but, you know, like you alluded to, on off the field uh, with the, the team trying to uh, prop it up, trying to get some help for them. Uh, the team uh, kind of rallied behind him both on the field and off the field with him, uh, you know, trying to get some help for them any way he could. Talk to me about uh, this uh, September game. It looks like the uh, the ownership uh, tried to actually uh, 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 improve their fortunes by switching a home game away from Ypsilanti uh, into uh, London, Ontario, obviously relatively close to, to Detroit, but still actually further away than Ypsilanti was from downtown Detroit. Uh, what, what was what, I mean? What what, uh, what what was sort of the the surroundings uh, or the the issues around sort of that? Like, why was that sort of seen as a magic bullet? Well, it was actually orchestrated by the owner of Portland, who they were going to play for that game, uh, Bob Harris, who wanted to put a franchise in London, Ontario, um, at some point, either in '75 or '76. That was his his goal was to move Portland to London. So he asked the team, we'll, we'll give you some money if you will move the team to London um, and play there instead of playing in the Ypsilanti. They agreed to it. They went to London. It was a, um, you know, it was an army base a stadium, not not real big, and they drew only about 5,000 people to it. It was a rainy day, but still nobody wanted to go see it. So, yeah, it was actually Portland that did that. They agreed to it on the, on the uh, idea of their, they were going to get some money for it. I don't know if they ever did get the money. I've heard different stories saying they never did get the money for it, um, or uh, you know, they, if they did, they didn't get as much as they thought they would. So, but so, that's why the, so the, the game idea was, was sorry. The idea was Harris kind of trying to maybe use this as sort of a I don't know a real world sort of exhibition game in London, and 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 and, and arguably uh, allaying some of the costs uh, or paying for it uh, versus uh, them uh, playing a game in Ypsilanti and, and losing dough. Yes, exactly. I mean, that's what a lot of the players thought. It was a kind of an exhibition game instead of an actual regular season game. It was really treated like an exhibition game. So it was really him just trying to to showcase his his team to another venue, to another uh, location. Like I said, he wanted to move his team to uh, London, called them the London Lords or something like that. And that was his ultimate goal was to move them out of Portland. He didn't like being in Portland. And he asked uh, Detroit, because that was so close, like you said, it was just across the border from uh, Detroit to London, and if they would move the team in the league or the, the game there, they did. Um, and again, didn't draw well at all. It's probably, the, I think it was at the time, the smallest crowd in WFL since the season had started. So it didn't work out well um, for anybody involved, and it was just uh, another bad decision. 
Uh, and they came back next uh, week uh, to a, a home crowd that was even uh, uh, perhaps equally small. I mean, I, there's debate, it seems, uh, against the uh, Southern California Sun uh, in, in September. Uh, they lost a close one, 10 to 7. Um, but uh, I guess the, it looks like the announced crowd was 6,351. Uh, but there are reports that show that uh, there were actually perhaps less than 2,000 fans uh, in attendance. Yeah. I think everybody, both uh, both sides of the uh, of the football and otherwise, just sort of recognize that this was just completely untenable and and trouble serious uh, n- in nature. Oh yeah, I mean it was just you could tell how deep the problems were just by that. And yeah, you're right. It was even a small crowd like that was exaggerated to try to make it look as as good as it could be. Even though you're right, it was probably around two thousand twenty five hundred people, hardly anybody in the stands. And again, you're talking about a big market, Detroit, which is a top market in the country. Um, not drawing fans, not playing in, in where they should be, not uh, you know having any money. Uh, constant stories every day in the paper: whether they're going to move, whether they're going to be sold. People just don't want to buy into that. People don't want to go to a game that they may start driving out to Ypsilanti to get to the game and say, "Well, the game's been canceled. The team's moving to such and such city." So that just you know all the negative publicity hurt them. Um, by you know the crowds just kept going, you know, getting smaller and smaller. Um, as the season went on, um, it was amazingly that they did that when they started out at 10,000, but, um, that's what happened. And, and again, yeah, they were, they were, they lost again, late to Southern California, another late game, 10 to seven that they may have won. Um, so yeah, it was just a, it was just a, a point to where the, it was just getting to the point where it just, it was impossible. This was not going to work. This was just not going to work. We're going to have to do something about it. And, uh, it was, you know, but it just ultimately did not work out as far as either the other owners or maybe moving to another um, another city. So, so just when the, it it seems like things are getting bad, I mean, they're zero and ten at this point. And what happens? Right, literally four days later, they go down to Florida, and on September eleventh, which is a Wednesday night, which is oddly how the WFL played most of their games was on Wednesday nights, uh, which is a whole other set of topics we can get into, but. They go down to the, the to Orlando to play the Florida Blazers, and and the Blazers, frankly, are, are one of the strongest teams in the league. And what happens? An zero and ten Detroit wheels, you know, battered by poor finances, the lowest uh, attendance in the league, no wins to their credit. They go down to Florida, and what the what happens? They beat them. <laughs> they beat they beat the Blazers. It was one of those games. It was fifteen to fourteen, very close. Um, again, one of those games that usually they lost because it was a late game. Florida had a couple of chances late in the game to, uh, to pull it out. They, uh, Bob Davis got intercepted twice. Uh, Florida even one time had a fifth down. The referees uh, miscounted on the downs. They had actually a five chances instead of four to try to pull the game out. Detroit still held them off. Um, they celebrated like they won the Super Bowl because they finally won after the 10 losses in a row, and it was just – it was really amazing that, you know, like you said, here they go. They've lost 10 in a row. They've got all these issues. They go beat one of the best teams in the league um, on their own field in Orlando. And it was just an amazing uh, story. And just in that, to be able to at least win one game uh, against a very strong team. Yet 13 days later, the wheels file for bankruptcy and the league takes over the team probably, probably in the days before that. Maybe you can describe, uh, and you've hinted a little bit, of sort of the, how is the league now trying to figure out how to immediately solve and then maybe more longer term solve 
this uh, this wheels problem now that bankruptcy is uh, has been thing. And it, just to, for our audience to sort of understand, uh, I think they listed something uh, in the neighborhood of like two and a half million dollars of debt. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, with, with just a crazy amount of, of loans uh, and overhang just to, in the span of just not even nine months of, uh, of existence. Yeah, it was two and a half million. Uh, that's what their liabilities were listed at. Um, again, they owed $820,000 just to the league itself, but they had all these bills that they had run up. They had never been able to pay, whether it was small bills like a printer or a photographer or something like that. It was laundry. There was all different kind of businesses that were owed uh, money to. Um, it was, they, they only drove a, a total of 56,000 people the whole season, which is about an, an average crowd for the Lions at Tiger Stadium. So um, it just, again, they had a ton of money that they owed. Uh, the league was trying to get them either sold or moved. Bell and DeLorean were still um, in, the, in the running to move to uh, to buy the team, but I believe that they got scared off again, seeing how much debt they were going to have to assume. That not only you know take over running the team day by day, but they were also going to have to assume all this debt, which was quite a bit of money back then. I'm not sure how it, it uh, was in terms of like 2019 dollars, but I'm sure it was quite a bit. But at the time, you know, two and a half million—that's a lot of money. And, and again. A man like John DeLorean or someone like Upton Bell, they don't get rich or they get uh, uh, successful by throwing good money after bad. And they just uh, got cold feet and said, no, we're not going to take it over. Uh, We're sorry. We're not going to buy it. And uh, with that out of the way, then uh, the league, like you said, took it over uh, for the last, uh, for that game. They played a game that night in New York uh, where they didn't play very well, of course, because they, you know, they were voting whether or not they should play. They finally wound up voting to play, didn't play very well because they're, you know, obviously their hearts at that point, the league's taken over their, their team. Um, you know, they didn't have a very good crowd in New York, obviously, because again, you know, they were playing in Downing Stadium there at the, in New York. Um, it was a nice night, but they just didn't have the crowd there. So uh, it was just a depressing kind of a thing where, you know, you hear you're bankrupt and the team's not may not uh, exist tomorrow. They just had one of their worst games. They lost uh, thirty-seven to seven to uh, New York. Um, and and weren't, that, the, weren't the rumors that the, weren't the rumors at that time in that game that uh, that uh, the uh, wheels uh, were going to be going to Charlotte, and uh, most people sort of were expecting that. I think that it came out. They, you know, they were still hoping for that. I think a lot of the players in the in the, in the front office, I think they were hoping that they were going to move. I think it was either. Well, right yeah, sorry, this is also, or, I think the stars were also being rumored to be right. moving in, in Charlotte as well, right? So it almost seems like, I think, in the press, it was sort of a speculation as to which of those two teams was going to go to Charlotte with uh, with Mr. Bell. Right, and uh, I think it was one of the New York assistant coaches was running off the field after the game with one of the Detroit assistants, and he said, hey, we're moving to Charlotte. They said, oh, great, you know, good for you, you lucky SOB, you know, and that's how they... First found out, and then it came out after the game that yes, the New York Stars were beating Detroit that night. They were going to move to Charlotte. Um, they didn't have as much debt as the Detroit team. Uh, they looked a little bit better. They were actually um, still in the running for a playoff spot at that time. So they looked like a more attractive franchise for Bell to assume, and uh, they moved to Charlotte instead of Detroit. So that's that was the, kind of the, the, their last straw. 
that was their last hope to, if they were going to be successful or still exist, to move to Charlotte. And when that uh, didn't pan out and New York moved instead, then that was pretty much the end of the line, even though they had one more game to play. Which is also incredible, right? Because we're talking about the possibility of two teams moving in the middle of the season, right? So which is just incredible to consider in a supposedly professional league uh, as well, right? So, you know, here you are, sort of a, a battle of teams that are, <laughs> frankly, not even uh, worried about uh, maybe even the game, but they're more concerned about where they're going to be next week and what, what city, perhaps. This is crazy, right. I believe. Right, and, you know, not only that, you're moving from big markets like New York, like Detroit, and you're moving to small markets. You're moving to Charlotte. You're talking about moving to Louisville, Kentucky, and Shreveport, and Little Rock, Arkansas. I mean, I'm sure they're fine cities and were at that time, but you're talking tiny markets that make you look like a minor league, you know, minor league uh, league. You're not a, a major league that's going to compete against the NFL. If the NFL is still in the big markets, you're forced to move out of the big markets and move to smaller markets where. Um, you know, you might be able to make a go of it. Again, that that looks bad on you. That looks bad on the league, on, on everything. And again, it was another nail in their coffin where they had to start moving where Houston did move to Shreveport. Um, and Jacksonville and Florida, or not Florida, excuse me, Jacksonville. And uh, then the wound up, the wheels wound up uh, finally dissolving. So it's just a, an idea that, you know, if you're, if you're going to move, move to another big market, but Moving from a big market to a small market just makes you look minor league, makes you look like small potatoes as a, as opposed to the NFL. And, and the NFL, of course, played that up in the papers and in the press. And, you know, the fans just, you know, they kind of turned their back on them. Unless it was a city where they were having success, where they were doing well, um, they might have stuck with them, you know. But uh, as far as, like, teams like Detroit and New York and then and places like that, Portland, um, they were – Pretty much, you know, the the fan um, attraction and the fan uh, base had pretty much started to uh, wither away by that by this time. And this was still only in September, late late September. Well, we know how Shreveport and uh, and Charlotte uh, played out for for the WFL. But it was there any more uh, things that you unearthed about their uh, their pursuit of Louisville, or any sort of other details there, or that you discovered in your your uh, investigation. Well, I mean, uh, Henry Lee Parker, who was really the, the guy, the front office guy from the WFL, was looking into all these different places. He was he was saying, hey, I'd like to move into Little Rock next week. They, they've got the facility and everything. Uh, Louisville was the same thing. They had a guy who was one of the owners of the wheels, Dick Volpe, who said that he would assume control of it if he could move the team to Louisville. But they really didn't have that great a stadium down there at the time. It was very small again. Would have been uh, feasible? Would have been a success? Who knows? Probably not. You're moving from one small stadium to another. Um, but that never panned out. Again, the Shreveport thing, the guy that was uh, going to buy was a lumberman down there, a big uh, big lumberman uh, business uh, in the Shreveport. Um, he said, no, he wasn't interested in football anymore. He put the kibosh on that whole deal. Um, so it really was the point where they just didn't have anywhere to turn and there was no place to go except for just, uh, to finally, uh, end the franchise to fold it as far as it was just not going to exist anymore. 
which is what happened uh, after uh, the uh, turns out to be the last game of the wheels uh, playing in said uh, uh, port of Shreveport, Louisiana, uh, losing uh, yet another close game, 14 to 11. Uh, and uh, on October 2nd, 1974 is when that game occurred. Uh, and very shortly thereafter, uh, the wheels, I guess, having uh, with the league and or whatever was left of of management, the bankruptcy courts just basically just giving up the ghost and folding, I guess, the first team to actually officially fold uh, in the WFL and then negating uh, what I guess was the last what, six games of the regular season. So what happens to the team, the assets, uh, the players, the coaches, uh, you know, where does the diaspora sort of go? Well, a, a good, a, a kind of a neat little side story to that Shreveport game. Uh, they, it was originally supposed to be in Detroit, one of those games that they moved because they thought they could get better crowds. They were having good crowds down at Shreveport since Houston had moved there, so they rescheduled it and changed it to Shreveport. Well, the courts were after the team. The courts uh, said they were going to file an injunction on the team. They were going to. They were not supposed to go out of the out of the state. So the team had to actually like sneak onto the plane. They had lookouts. They had people trying to to uh, distract these IRS agents who were waiting at the airport to uh, to get the team to to stop them from going to Shreveport. Um, they took a flight that was like five days in advance instead of you know usually you fly in a day or two ahead of time, but to try to you know beat the IRS and get out of town without them knowing it. They went about five days, um, five days early, went down there, managed to get out of town to get out of Shreveport. Again, like you said, lost another close game, which they could have won. Bounce here, bounce there, call here, call there, whatever it might have been. Uh, they might have won. So, I mean, uh, they might have won about seven, seven or eight games during the season if things had just bounced right. But, yeah, they um, the, the league – Actually, it was them in Jacksonville. Um, Jacksonville, they pretty much were going to they, – they, what they did was they really kind of – and then led these teams along. After they said they were going to fold them, they kept giving them this, well, you know, maybe we'll come back next year. Maybe we'll keep the team together. And, you know, the players are just getting tired of it by this time. They were just – you know, they heard this over and over again. Um, and they finally – I think it was uh, – in late October, they finally said, okay, we're giving up the ghost. This is it. No more team. No more team here. No more team in Jacksonville. They had a dispersal draft of both the players uh, of both teams. And uh, finally then mercifully folded the franchise, which uh, well, October 22nd was when they held the draft. And it was actually, if you look back on it, it was a day to the year before the league actually folded in October 22nd of 75. So, um, it was also the same day that they uh, dispersed or closed down the Jacksonville Sharks, too, right? Both teams were, were right. closed. Yep. yep, both teams were, were – they had the dispersal draft for both teams. Um, they only had 16 uh, of, the, uh, of, the, of the wheels that got picked. Um, a lot of the guys uh, didn't get picked. They, you know, they had, what, 35 players on the, on the team, and not even half of them got picked by anybody else. So uh, yeah, it was just, but it was just that idea. They kept them kind of hanging there for about a month until they finally had the dispersal draft with them and, and Jacksonville, and they had to cancel the last six weeks of the season um, for both teams. So yeah, it just it was a sad ending, uh, but a lot of people saw it coming. It was just a, a bad situation um, for all around. Again, as we've talked, um, 
you know, just the idea that, uh, you know, Jacksonville, on the other hand, had kind of lied about. They were a part of that whole uh, Papergate scandal where they had the uh, paper to house in there in Philadelphia. And it turns out a lot of the other teams had done that. Um, Detroit didn't have enough, play, enough uh, fans to paper the house at all, except for the one game there, like we talked about earlier with Southern California, where they might have done it a little bit to make it look somewhat um, not as disastrous as it would have been. But, yeah, it was just a sad ending to a, but a, an incredible story about how they, again, didn't, didn't have squabbles internally, didn't turn against each other. Nobody really quit. Um, they kept hanging in there. Uh, they kept, you know, bringing in players. They got cut by the NFL along the way. Um, so it wasn't a, a, an internal problem. It was just that, you know, there was no money. Uh, the coaching staff had no experience. They had no, uh, you know, idea of what they were really doing at the at the uh, at the pro level. You know, they've had college coaches go into the NFL over the years, but most of those guys usually keep a couple of assistants that have NFL experience that kind of guide them through the whole process of getting acclimated to that pro football, which is, you know, much different than the college game. I think if they'd have had a little bit more experience in at least an assistant coaching uh, aspect, I think that might have helped them on the field. Uh, as far as off the field, I don't know. Um, they just, it was just a, a you know, a Murphy's Law kind of thing right from the beginning. So it was just something that didn't pan out and, you know, there was signs from the very beginning that wasn't going to. It's uh, it's very interesting. The um, uh, Also, you look back sort of, uh, I, I guess the media coverage of the team uh, or lack thereof didn't sort of help either. And in particular, I'm talking about sort of the, the, the games. I know the, the games were broadcast on the radio uh, on uh, WWJ, which is sort of a, a big flamethrower in, uh, in Detroit, always has been. Um, but uh, I think that they were also they were very sparsely uh, available on television. I think there was only one local game, uh, which was, I think, the season opener in Memphis that that actually uh, ran on Detroit TV. And then, you know, the reality is that they were uh, uh, not very well uh, uh, scheduled on any of the uh, the national broadcasts. Obviously, there was the uh, the TBS, the TVS, excuse me, the TVS television network, which we've talked about on previous episodes where. Uh, they were uh, only, I think, scheduled for one game, which was the, the the home game that they played against the Chicago Fire on August 22nd. Boy, I'd love to get a, a copy of that. And then I think what also people sort of forget, too, is that uh, uh, WFL games were also on HBO Sports back in the day. Right now, we're talking circa 1974 when not a whole lot of people had HBO. Uh, but they were on a couple of uh, broadcasts there, I guess, a game against Philadelphia uh, away and... Um, uh, you know, I, so there is, you know, somewhere in somebody's vaults out there, there, there are some games, uh, some highlights, I guess, uh, to be found of Detroit Wheels games. And in particular, would love to see some some actual video from uh, at least one of those games from from their time in Ypsilanti. But uh, boy, oh boy, it's I mean, so what of, you know, what of uh, the members of the team? sort of after the fact, right? As you've done with your Florida Blazers book uh, in this Detroit Wheels book, uh, you kind of talk about sort of uh, uh, what's happened to some of these players and uh, management uh, folk and, and coaching staff. Uh, any any interesting stories that sort of uh, have evolved from, uh, you know, from some of the, uh, the, the actors, shall we say, in this uh, drama uh, since uh, the team's disbandment? 
Um, you know, some of them went on to the NFL. Um, Don Ratliff, who was a defensive end, uh, went on to the NFL, played in the NFL uh, for a couple of teams. Bubba Weiss went on to play for Chicago and had a whole thing with that because, you know, he was his rights were supposed to go to Philadelphia, but he got signed by Chicago because they needed a quarterback. They had a big to-do about that. They finally had to send some compensation to Philadelphia um, to or Chicago or to Philadelphia, excuse me, to, so they could sign him and keep playing him. He didn't have as much any any more success there in Chicago as they did because they were starting to go down downhill themselves with all the injuries they had. So um, a lot of the guys, you know, some of them played in the, in the WFL again in '75 um, and re-signed again for the uh, for the, the WFL. Some of them went to the CFL. Um, one guy, Mike Wilson, played. He was he was the only man I believe that played for like every league. He played the AFL. He played the WFL. CFL, the USFL, um, and there was another league I think he played in. He was like, man, I think maybe Anthony, but you know, he, he was the only one who played in the AFL itself because he was, you know, from the late sixties. Um, but you know, as far as anybody who might have become a star, um, that really didn't happen. A lot of the guys again were 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 just kind of guys that were, um, you know, marginal NFL players. Ron Fernandez did play for uh, Baltimore for a few years, played in the USFL with a couple of teams. Um, but as far as, you know, anybody really having a, you know, Mike Wilson, like I said, he played for, a, you know, both the CFL and the NFL and the uh, USFL. Um, but a lot of them, you know, their, their careers kind of petered out. They maybe went to uh, some camps, uh, NFL camps, you know, after the uh, WFL. Um, but it was really a, a case of where, you know, unlike, you know, maybe some of the other teams where they had some young players who, who went on the NFL, um, the Detroit team just did not have that, uh, you know, um, kind of a, a, enough players there and players that were recognizable and had the talent that they could go on to another, another, uh, another league under the NFL and play uh, for any kind of length of time. And some of them were older guys that, you know, were just trying to get one last shot at the limelight. So um, it was just kind of a, an idea of, you know, a few players did, but a whole lot of them didn't. So it was maybe a couple of years of CFL, but that was about it. All right. One, one last question is, as you're, uh, and this is more about process of how you do research for, for these these books and these stories and stuff. I, obviously, you're talking to uh, a number of the, the people actually involved as well. Um, any, uh, any sort of... Uh, uh, Memories that sort of stand out from from the folks that you talk to uh, were they bitter? Were they disappointed? Were they uh, comical? And uh, hey, it just was the way it was. Uh, any kind of sort of what, what kind of feelings I guess emanated from uh, from the the direct people that you talked to in in investigating and and, and rehashing this uh, Detroit Wheel story? Well, I think that you had them all across the board. I think some of them were bitter. Uh, they had been lied to. They had been told a lot of stories and a lot of promises uh, that did not come out. Uh, they did not come, you know, to come to fruition. You know, uh, Bubba Weish, I know he was very, uh, very upset. There was some other team, some other guys, Rocky Long, who went on to a long uh, college coaching career. He was uh, very bitter about some of the things that happened. Um, and a lot of them, you know, some of them were comical. The, the one story that most of them remember that were if they, if they were there in training camp was when the uh, owners were going to uh, meeting to get together to see where they're going to play, you know, have training camp. Usually they have it at a college 
you know, local college, that kind of thing, where they, you know, house the players, you know, have their cafeteria and have their meals, that kind of thing. One of the owners, uh, this shows the total inexperience of the owners, said, you know what, you know, we're, we're losing money already. Why don't we just have the players move on to Bell Island, which was a, you know, a, a, a city-owned island in the, the Detroit River at the time, and let's just have them housed in tents. And, uh, you know, the, the Sonny, Sonny Grandellis is looking at them and saying, okay, but how are you going to feed them? How are you going to, uh, you know, how are they going to shave? How are they going to wash? Uh, they're just living in tents. Oh, never thought of that. Well, okay. And a lot of the players were just amazed at that story that they, you know, they said, yeah, they remember it. They couldn't believe it. You know, they heard horror stories from the, the AFL, the early days of the AFL, but they never had been asked to house to live in tents for, for training camps. So they took the camp part of uh, training camp a little too seriously and uh, thought they were going to be able to camp out and, uh, you know, have them housed in tents instead of paying for a, like a dormitory kind of thing at a college. And again, this shows either both the inexperience and the lack of funds that they had, that they just had no idea what they were dealing with and what they were expected to do, what was expected of a pro football team, what was expected of, you know, as far as finances and as far as uh, expenses. So uh, that was the one thing that I, I noticed a lot of them were just amazed at that story, that that, you know, that that actually happened, that they, that was actually considered. Uh, but, yeah, the, the stories went from, you know, all, all across the board. Some of them were happy. Some of them said, you know, it happened. I enjoyed playing football. I loved playing football. I got to play pro football. I wouldn't have if I hadn't have signed on with the team. You know, I would have stopped at college. I would have, or maybe played minor league football, but it was as close to pro football as I ever played. And they were they were happy for the experience. Some of them, again, like you, like I said, um, were were actually bitter, and you know, rightfully so. Um, a lot of promises were made. A lot of things were were said that they were going to happen and didn't happen. But it was. Uh, it was an incredible story. To me, it still is. And, um, and what they put up with, again, didn't get, you know, didn't turn on each other, kept together, um, and kept playing. Nobody quit. Nobody left the team. I think that's amazing. You know, you're not getting paid. You're, and you're, if you are, it's very small. And you're dealing with no equipment, no programs, no game films. The game films couldn't be processed. They didn't have game films for some of the games to prepare. Um, yeah, it was just, it was just an, an amazing thing that they still, even though they didn't have success on the field, they still stuck together, hung together, said, let's win this or let's just stay together and keep playing and hopefully things will get better. People, you know, a lot of people still have that, you know, that hope out there that, you know, things will get better. I know things will get better. You can't stay like this, but unfortunately it did. And, and, uh, the Detroit wheels folded there in September and, uh, but still, it's a story that I think should be told and uh, should be remembered, if nothing else, for what not to do when you're running a sports franchise. Well, you you have a great you have a great quote in the book that uh, kind of I think sums it up. It uh, was punter Chuck Collins, and uh, he's quoted as saying uh, in your in your writings that uh, they were just 32 jerks who thought they'd be millionaires overnight. They told us only one truthful thing out of 5,000 lies. That was the fact that we were bankrupt. Yeah. Uh, and, then, and that, you know, so that to me encapsulates. So I guess it's sort of the last question. So what is it about this, not necessarily just this team, but this league, the WFL, that 
again, in retrospect, seemingly attracted so much in the way of uh, let's financial irregularities and and misplaced hopes and operational craziness and ineptitude. How would, how do these kinds of people sort of all sort of find each other in this sort of dynamic? Because it just seems that this entire the premise of this league feels like it was so flimsily dependent on a, a various sort of level of, of cards, I guess, that just collapsed relatively quickly. Was was this because of the of the ill uh, conceived uh, concept of, of Davidson and the franchise thing and sort of the it almost feels like a Ponzi scheme. And, you know, as you especially as you dig into all these different sort of uh, team situations in the league and ultimately what happened is just it just it boggles the mind that that the the level of uh, uh, just craziness could could be so widespread with this with this outfit. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, you know, you can, you can read stories about like the ABA. They had their horror stories. They had WHA, but it really was. You're you're absolutely right. It was like a league wide problem. And again, with the ABA, with the WHA, Davidson and his buddy were able to kind of prop up a couple of teams that were having problems. Most of them were still pretty solvent. With the WFL, it was like a, it was, it, it was, it was an amazing thing where all of these things all came together in one league. And like I said earlier, they lucked out with a couple of decent owners, um, you know, John Bassett up in Memphis and uh, the Philadelphia owner who had, uh, you know, had money. He just didn't have the, uh, the fans there, but you had some owners that were, uh, you know, that, that had the money, had the wherewithal to uh, to survive and to run a football team, but there was just so many that either didn't know how to do it, didn't have the money to do it, or both. And they just, or they, they were just put into it, and they thought they could get out and make a big profit. And I think Davidson might have, you know, promised them that. If you get in here on the ground floor, you pay $800,000 for a team, you can turn around and sell it for maybe two or three, four million. Um, so yeah, it was really kind of, in some ways, it seemed like some kind of a scheme where it was just, let's hurry up and get this done. As we alluded to earlier, let's just try to get this thing on the field. And we had a bunch of owners that again, no background checks were done. It was just, okay, you say you've got this money. We're putting you in. All right. Do you want to own this team? Great. Here you go. Thanks. Welcome to the club. And you know, that wasn't the idea of, okay, we're going to do a check on you and see if you do have this money. And and try to get substantial people into the into the picture at all levels at all teams and try to have all teams have those deep pockets that you need to run a pro football team because you're going to lose money at least the first few years because of that and it's showing up with our with these new leagues that uh, you know are coming up here now the AAF um, already has financial problems that's going to show up with any new business. You're going to have problems, especially if you're going against an established um, entity like the NFL, NBA, NHL, that kind of thing, especially with the NFL. Uh, the USFL was maybe the only one that really had it um, had it right where they said, we're going to play in the spring. We're not going to go head-to-head with you guys. We're going to play in the spring. They had, some, they had again, some decent owners. They had some, uh, you know, some trouble areas. Not as many as the WFL. The WFL, I don't know what it was. They just attracted the, the wrong kind of owners, and it was all at one time at one place. And it's just amazing that 
they could do that, could be that, that inept at finding people to run their franchises and think it was okay, and then have them all either move, uh, fold, um, have financial issues where they just could not get enough money to pay players, to pay their bills. And it was league-wide. It wasn't just something that, you know, had one or two teams where you, okay, let's kind of prop these guys up. Everybody else is doing well, but these two teams or this team is not doing well. It was just the opposite. We had maybe one or two that were solvent where you had 10, 10, 11 teams that just didn't didn't have the money, didn't have the wherewithal, didn't have the, the experience to run a pro football franchise. And it was just amazing that they were all – managed to get into one league at one time it's just it is it's it's an amazing story All right. Our thanks to Mark again for uh, for joining us and uh, going deeper into uh, more stuff from the WFL and as as you heard uh, there is some uh, a, 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 there's a trove of, of unfound tape out there I you got to think that at least uh, a few uh, snippets of stuff uh, beyond what's available on YouTube and on uh, the great Richie Franklin's websites are are, are out there and findable. Uh, and in, in particular, HBO, I think people forget the fact that HBO uh, in very early days, 1974 and in the uh, the reconstituted uh, WFL in 1975 broadcast a whole slate of games, uh, none of which that I've seen or, or even heard about uh, as uh, you know, has got to be out there. And um uh, would love to be able to get our hands on uh, on some of that footage. Uh, there's a lot of TVS, uh, television network games, uh, not uh, for, uh, seen uh, for years since their original broadcast either. So we put it out there to our listeners, our, our uh, rabid listeners, uh, who just uh, eat up all this stuff. And we love to sort of find out and see if we can find some of that uh, some of that tape that's out there. Audio broadcasts as well. You know, there's a lot of stuff out there, we think. Uh, that is uh, sitting around in boxes and attics and basements out there. Uh, hopefully we'll be able to find some of it. And frankly, let's be honest, I do think a documentary is absolutely uh, worthwhile. I mean, again, as these uh, as these challenger leagues continue to pop up, I mean, the AAF, uh, Charlie Ebersol, Ebersol and Friends uh, this uh, spring with uh, that challenger league and uh, uh, its uh, uh, opportunities going forward. And, and we think, of course, the, the, the newly reconstituted XFL next season, uh, there just seems to be uh, a, uh, a trigger, I guess, for what came beforehand, right? And the USFL, the World League of American Football, certainly the AFL. But uh, yes, the WFL was is part of that sort of uh, challenger league history. And, uh, you know, there's uh, it, to me, it's great documentary fodder. And, uh, I, you know, there doesn't seem to be any shortage of stories about the craziness of this league. And, and we learn something new, it seems, with every episode. Uh, with all kinds of stories and things that uh, have never been told before. So uh, we put it out there to our audience to not only help find some of that tape, but uh, God forbid, if you're th- if you're in the realm of sports uh, journalism and or document- uh, documentary production, uh, geez, can't think of a better uh, topic perhaps than the uh, WFL. Uh, the story that just keeps on giving, it seems. Um, all right, so let's see. Uh, our website, again, is goodseatsstillavailable.com. You will find all of our social media feeds there. You will find... Uh, all of our old episodes there. You will find uh, links uh, to uh, all the books and things that we mention on this uh, show. 
you will find uh, not only uh, uh, the show available wherever you can find great podcasts. We also publish to YouTube, so you can find it there. Or people who just don't understand the podcasting thing, they can listen and stream it there. Let's see. You can find uh, our email address on our website, but you can also send us stuff directly if you want it. Hello at GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. Make sure you follow us on social media. Uh, on Twitter, we're at Good Seats Still. Uh, Instagram, you'll find us at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, you will find a um, page uh, devoted to us on uh, Facebook. And uh, geez, what else? We got a new uh, newsletter that we send out each week, uh, uh, touting our, uh, our our episodes uh, and what's on each and every week. So feel free to sign up for that there on the website. And uh, geez, I don't know what else, but uh, by all means, uh, please by leave. Uh, Uh, All the great uh, uh, reviews and ratings, if you can, wherever you listen, that certainly helps our algorithms and other people find the show. We appreciate that, too. Uh, And last but not least, of course, thank you to Jerry Payne uh, and his colleagues at Podfly Productions for their work each and every week helping us uh, put this show together. You can find out more about him and them at podfly.net. Thank you so much for listening this week. We'll see you next week. Uh, Until then, we appreciate uh, your listening and we'll see you. See you soon. 